Hello, and welcome to another episode of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos. Hey, guys, it's been a few weeks. We have been doing live streams for the last three weeks in a row on Critical Q&A, so this is a return to our pre-recorded form. And I wanted to start this with a couple things, a um, couple of notices, points that are kind of important. I've been bringing this up recently, um, and I will continue to do so because I think it, it's important. I don't know, you know who's going to see this or when. But on October 4th of this, of this year, right next month, at uh, 2.20 p.m. Eastern Time, FEMA will perform a test emergency broadcast on all cell phones in the USA. This is a notice I've received. I believe it is real. And um, because of that, if you have a hidden phone, if you're watching this from within a coercive controlling situation where you have uh, secret methods of communication you've developed, like a phone, uh, to be able to have a little bit of freedom and a little bit of uh, ability to get out of that, then you're going to want to have a heads up about that October 4th date because you're going to want to have your phone off so it's not found out about, okay? And if it doesn't happen on the 4th, it's supposed to happen on the 11th as the backup date. So anyway, something to look at uh, on the FEMA website, tune into, there you go. The other thing I wanted to throw out um, on the channel here, and if you guys have been watching my live streams recently, then you know I have been on a real kick about this and I'm going to continue because I, I just, I want to grow this channel. I am tired of being a small channel. I deserve to be a bigger channel. I have a body of work that is absolutely helpful to people, that is absolutely going to assist them with coercive situations, culty situations. It's all there. It's all free. It's all, it's always going to be. And, um, and it's there for you guys. And it's evergreen content. Most, I mean, 99% of what I post on my channel is not uh, no good next week. It is still very relevant. And I really encourage anybody who comes to my channel to look at and explore the whole library of stuff I've got here. YouTube is not so great at categorizing stuff, but I have put a lot of playlists together. And I'm going to be um, eventually, I have no promises on when, but I am trying to figure out ways that I might be able to use my uh, mncriticalthinking.com blog link below to maybe start categorizing uh, better on uh, some of my older, all my content, really, in terms of, uh, in terms of that. Because playlists alone don't really do the job. But that's the future. For now, the content is still there. And if you use the Google search bar or the YouTube search, uh, you can find it. I also have a Critical Clips channel. There are over a thousand videos on that channel, too, which are excerpts from my mainline channel. So if you're curious about individual questions I've answered in the past, most of them are there from my original Q&A shows as well as excerpts from podcasts and uh, shows that I've done. So I really, really encourage you guys to check all that out. It was all, all this work was done to help you guys. And I want your assistance back. Help me now. Help me help you. <laughs> by sharing, liking, uh, you know, letting people know about this channel and knowing what I do here. Um, I just don't know a better way to spread good, you know, will or to, to spread work than through goodwill, through word of mouth, good word of mouth. And, I, and from what I hear from my viewers, you guys love this stuff. 
And I do too. I love making it and I want to continue doing so. And in order to uh, grow this thing and get in front of more people and do this more successfully, I need your help. All right. So that all being said, um, I've got lots of other things I could talk about. I did want to plug uh, my book, Scientology A to Zenu. I don't talk about this enough. I should probably actually put it up here or something. It'll probably fall down. But um, that is my... um, that's my book, and it's all about Scientology. If you want to know the details of Scientology, get this book. This one, as far as I'm concerned, and of course I'm biased, of course I am, but as far as I'm concerned, this book and A Piece of Blue Sky by John Atack are your one-two punch on understanding Scientology, right? Like for real, like really, really breaking it apart and getting who was L. Ron Hubbard, what is Dianetics, what is Scientology, why do they have tax exemption, And even in here, a few chapters on recovery from Scientology. And that information applies to anybody coming out of any cult situation. So that all being said, now let's get on with your questions. Paul, why is it so hard for people to agree to disagree and still get along? I don't demand others to agree with me on everything in order for me to like them or be nice to them. I don't quite understand why it's so difficult to be able to disagree and not be treated differently. Of course, I don't want to hang out with a racist, but that's a bit extreme, and I see this behavior in the smallest opinionated differences or about things that don't really matter. Are people that hardwired to their opinions slash beliefs that they feel attacked with any little opinion difference and strike out? What do you think? Okay, Paul, thank you very much for asking me this. This is a really good question, and of course, this has everything to do with emotion, versus critical thinking and our more rational frontal lobes and how we think about things and how this also has to do with our morality, our moral foundations, our ideas of what's good and bad and right and wrong. That has a lot to do with how invested we are in ideas and how hard we will champion them or defend them. I made a couple notes here, right? Now, the first thing, of course, and this is the most obvious point, even before we get into psychology or neuroscience or any of that deep stuff, we can just simply say, most people just don't want to be agreed with, and they don't like it when they are. Um, You know, they put, especially on social media, for example, I mean, hell, this happens to me all the time. I, you know, I've, uh, you know, we're not level-headed, and when we're making emotionally impactful statements, it moves out of the realm of objectivity, and it moves over into our identity, who we see ourselves as. And it also moves over into our ideas and concepts of our own survival. Even small things. Not This isn't like great big change the world ideas. It could be small stuff. People can become very, very passionate about the smallest things in the moment. And this also has to do a lot with, um, of course, our emotional state in the moment. Right? There's emotional needs, which are kind of a longer-term thing, but you know, if you're mad right now or worried or upset or anxious, then you're not going to receive disagreement the same way you will if you're bored, the same way you will if you're interested, the same way you will if you're happy. All of these emotional states would bring different reactions and responses to how the communications are being received or how you will communicate to other people. Uh, this is, the, you know, this is literally the, 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 the heart and soul of emotional response. <laughs> so, um, so we don't always see somebody's emotions or we don't always see their emotions accurately. We don't always spot them 
correctly. And we can think somebody's pretty cool or pretty level-headed in the moment when in fact they're furious or they are um, not even paying attention or they are, you know, uh, anxious or upset. And they're kind of suppressing it or holding on to it until suddenly you say something and, and it triggers something else, right? And then suddenly there's this torrent of, of awful coming out of them. Uh, and these, this happens to all of us, not, not just the assholes, not just the jerks. I mean, all of us can have our moments. I don't know one human being who hasn't had thousands of them, <laughs> right? Me, me at the top of the list. So, um, so this, is, this is what you're encountering when you're running into the realm of ideas and argumentation and disagreement with other people, right? Disagreement is, I don't like what you said, or there's something wrong with what you said, therefore, you're wrong about that. This is the exact opposite of what your gray matter is supposed to be doing for you. Your, your, your brain is supposed to be predicting and providing information to you that will assist your survival. And when somebody comes along and says, uh-uh, no, it's not, then your immediate response is to try to hit back against that, get that out of your life, get that out of your way. No, 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 I'm right, you're wrong. It's the immediate response, unless you are in a place where you're expecting it, anticipating it, you're predicting a disagreement, then it's a little bit different, isn't it? You know, if you put yourself willingly into a debate situation, for example, or you have sit down and you're like, okay, let's have a conversation, and you kind of get yourself into that place where you're, you're predicting that this person's going to disagree with you. This person's going to have things to say to you that you maybe didn't think about or haven't considered, or maybe they're going to try to change your mind or whatever, but you're prepared for it. And when you're, it's really, I believe, the times when things really get ugly is when people are maybe not so prepared for it or not ready for it. Um, again, not a universal truth. None of these things are, but they, but, but it's, you know, general ideas about how this works. So those are some of my immediate thoughts off the top of my head about this. Um, yeah, let me see if there's anything else I want to say about this. Um, oh, the other thing I wanted to say is also there is a thing you can contrast this with how everyone who's invested in, um, culture war values, for example. See, all of us have a different set of values, a different set of things that we think are important. And it's shocking sometimes to find out in running into other people what they think is important. So while it's not a trigger for you, it's not a big problem for you to be you know, disagreed with about white rice or brown rice, some people, right, might really get passionate about this because perhaps it's tied in with their diet or with their nutrition or with concepts or ideas they have about how it's always brown rice and it better be the brown rice. And if you have the white rice, well, you're just eating bleached rice and that's just junk and you might as well go down to McDonald's and how dare you. And, and you suddenly you're getting a face full of, whoa, didn't see this coming. So it's really interesting how people will take ideas or take uh, beliefs and um, tie them so closely to their, you know, their sense of what they need, their needs, right? Again, going back to that emotional needs and physical needs. This also 
heavily ties in with um, physical needs, which is the lowest level of Maslow's hierarchy, right? Your basic needs, your most, you know, do you have transport? Do you have food? Do you get sleep? You know, do you have a, you have a roof over your head? The, you know, if these things are not accounted for, you will find people in, in incredibly stressed mindsets and, and they will lash out all the time about all kinds of things, even things that aren't even seem to be on the topic. You know, you're, you're, you're suddenly getting a face full of awful from somebody on something that really doesn't mean much, but it doesn't have anything to do with that topic. It has to do with something else they're stressing about, and you just happen to be the closest target of their ire or anger or whatever, disagreement. So all of these things. In other words, it's complicated. It's variable, uh, depending on who you're talking to and what you're talking about, um, which is why. If you want to avoid this kind of thing, and it's impossible to totally avoid it as a human being, but if you want to do your best to try to lessen the amount of time that, that you waste or that other people are wasting with you in argumentation or disagreements that really don't matter, don't mean much, um, there's two pieces of advice I have, right? One is um, don't commit to anything 100%. Always be willing to question any idea, belief, or concept that's in your mind, right? Who made you God, right? How is it that you have uh, this line in with absolute truth and everything you think on this topic or this area is just 100% true for everybody all the time? How do, how do you know? You don't know that. No human being does. So it's best to always hold back a little bit and not go all in, right? Remember, only Sith steal in absolutes. <laughs> so kind of keep that in mind because it's actually kind of an important piece of information and it will save you an awful lot of stress and anxiety in um, questioning your own beliefs or having other people question them um, okay and then the other thing of course is if you're you know it's that sort of interior perception thing of like kind of being a self-aware of your situation and how you're doing and how other people are doing in the moment and so if you are getting a face full of awful, you're delivering a face full of awful to somebody else in the moment, maybe that's the moment to raise the red flag up, oh, up, oh, up. Oh, okay, maybe we should talk about this later, or maybe I need to just wait a few minutes or an hour or two, and then we can return to this after emotions have cooled, the adrenaline needs to calm down. I mean, there's chemical processes driving all of this. This is not some, you know, some sort of spiritual weird activity. This is your, this is how your body runs. So, um, so knowing that, then you know that these processes take time to calm down, to wear down. It's in the same way that if you go run a mile, it's going to take you a little, you know, a few minutes, maybe more than a few minutes to catch your breath, right? There's all those processes happening. So this, the mental processes are no different. They're no different just because you don't see them or feel them. Uh, directly, right? Just because you can't have an eyeball into your brain doesn't mean it's not happening. You very much experience it. So uh, that's my best advice on that topic. And of course, I strive to follow that as best I can. And anybody who follows me on, on social media knows I, uh, I am not always the king uh, of that myself, right? Because I got emotions just like everybody else. But I try. Okay, so that all being said, uh, thank you very much for asking, Paul. Heiko, 
It came to my attention from a YouTube video from somebody who is not exactly your best friend that there are supposed to be commands in Scientology to touch certain body parts in an audit situation. As a former auditor, can you validate this claim? Are sexually inappropriate commands a regular requirement, or is it mainly dependent on the auditor who might misuse their power in some cases? All right, great question. And yes, it's absolutely true that sexually inappropriate uh, commands are sometimes used in Scientology, and that that can be sometimes the auditor's choice, or sometimes it's directed by a case supervisor, who is a, a, a further person not in the room. He sits in, a, in his uh, ivory tower in his own office. He doesn't ever talk to the auditors or the pre-clears directly. He's supposed to be objective and sort of, you know, 200 yards out from the whole thing but they're the ones the case supervisors are the ones who direct what is to be audited on a pre-clear in Scientology the auditor doesn't just make it up in the chair as he's going and speaking of my earlier content I've done an entire like total breakdown on how all of this works in a podcast a few years ago I believe with Sunny Pereira where we talked about case supervision because she was a case supervisor in Scientology and and we went over how the entire thing works but that aside in an auditing session and here you're probably referring to an assist action because those are the actions where you're going to actually have an auditor or yourself touching your body um, there are such a thing as a contact assist where you are, um, let's say you were, let's say I, I, I bumped my arm into this table and it hurts. And here is the exact point where it hurt, where I, where I hit it. So a contact assist is a repetitive action of touching that hurt body part back to the place where the pain happened to try to run out the trauma. It's total horseshit. This doesn't work at all. Uh, most Scientologists actually know this too, but refuse to acknowledge it. They just aren't that interested in getting contact assists. I learned about these growing up, and they never really worked on me. And I always thought, you know, but, but sometimes you can kind of force it to work or sort of convince yourself it's working. Um, but, but it doesn't, you know. Um, the other thing, probably more appropriate or more directed to your question, is a touch assist, where a person who's delivering the assist, the quote-unquote auditor, will say, feel my finger, and they will put their finger on different parts of the person's body. And let's say you have a shoulder that is uh, sore or achy or, you know, you're having a, pro a chronic problem with shoulder pain. A, a touch assist might be concentrated or focused around touching parts around the shoulder, but the full process requires that you actually go up and down a person's body and you touch one side and then you touch the same point on the other side of their body. So it's mirrored back and forth, back and forth. So you're touching here and then you're touching here and then you're touching here and then you're touching here, right? Could, during the middle of such a process, you end up touching private parts, you know, uh, genital areas, yes, uh, that can happen. Now, it's not uh, written to do that, and it's not expected that you will do that unless those specific parts are the traumatized pain 
parts, the, the parts that are in chronic pain. But that could happen, right? If it was, you know, your lower regions or, you know, your chest area, then yes, that, that could be the target of a touch assist or other forms of assists. And this could, again, be directed by a case supervisor if this was acknowledged, you know, some problem or something the person was having. But if, uh, but, but strictly speaking, okay, just realistically speaking from my time in Scientology, you know, Scientologists are not ones who want to go around, you know, feeling up their PCs or using these assists as an excuse to sec- be sexually inappropriate. That's, that's for 99.9% of the people that I ever ran into in Scientology, that was never the point, And that was never what we were about, or what we were trying to do. We would even we would have recognized that as inappropriate. There's no reason to be, you know, uh, fondling or doing, you know, contact assist, uh, commands on a female on her you know in her in her bosom uh, <laughs> uh, unless that's the the target area and even then it's gonna be you know most male auditors are gonna be a little bit like okay are you sure this is okay you know I think now more than ever that would be true but even in the past now has it always been this way can I tell you this you know this was never the case that auditors were you know uh, being enga- engaging in inappropriate behavior absolutely not could this absolutely have been used for that purpose? Um, so, so that's a that's a thing. That's the context I understand your question in, um, because those are the kind of actions that tend to involve an auditor touching his preclear. Now, there could be other times. For example, there are specific objective processes. These are, again, and this is not an assist action where you're trying to heal a trauma or a pain. Objective processes are a kind of Scientology auditing. There are, we, again, we've gone over this in quite a bit of detail on this channel. You can find, I think it was a couple months ago, I did a whole live stream breaking down uh, objective processes. But those kind of processes involve the auditor touching and even manhandling the preclear. And during those times... If you had some kind of lecherous auditor or some guy who was a little bit interested in, you know, feeling up his preclear, that'd be the time to do it. And that could go for females to males as well as males to females. Um, and dare I say, I mean, if it was really, you know, if you really had some perv on your hands, then this could even involve children because objective processes are run on children the same way they're run on adults. They're just run for shorter periods of time. The auditing, pro- the auditing sessions are conducted the same way, but with children, they tend to be shortened because, children's of, because of children's attention span. So, um, so could it happen there? Could you have sexually inappropriate behavior in an objective session? Yeah, of course you could. Absolutely. And if the preclear, you know, obviously felt something was wrong about what was going on, odds are, they're not going to be believed, or if they are believed, um, they might be told that it's all just part of the process or something like that, unless it was something really off the rails, right? I mean, if an auditor was literally trying to, you know, attack or, or you know, really obviously blatantly, uh, you know, sort of grope their preclear, then uh, that could become an issue pretty quickly. So it's, so it's really maso menos, right? It's like it's sometimes yes, sometimes no in those kind of weird situations. But is the possibility there that that could happen? 100%. Uh, so there you go. The rabbit that. Would you consider doing a video on crossover between undue influence and PR? It's fascinating. 
When we talk to individuals, they are so smart. But when we put something out to the masses, things seem to get mega filtered and only some info and feelings get through and you have to deal with the unconscious. The themes common to PR and cultic manipulation are fascinating and you've touched on them many times, but not in a specific video. Thank you very much for this question. And I am not yet ready to do a full video on this. I'm actually, um, one of my books on my desk right now on my, um, the, the sort of the top five books on my reading list are on my desk. I've got a, I got a pile of books that I want to read and, and I put them on my desk and uh, Edward Bernays propaganda is uh, front and center on there. So I hope to get to that before too long. It's not even a very big book, but I've just, man, my schedule's just been insane lately. Um, now, so I thought I would take this up as, a, as an answer here, and maybe I can offer some thoughts. The way I look at this, when you talk about a crossover between undue influence and PR, um, you know, or, or if we bring in coercive control, right, then we're talking about a tool set, propaganda, PR, lies, deception, falsehoods, uh, curved truths, half-truths, uh, fake news. These are tools in the toolbox of a controller or coercive controlling personality or what we might call a human predator. Um, these tools are incredibly effective and PR is the tool of mass manipulation while undue influence might be referred or thought about more as a kind of one-on-one -on -one or, I mean, obviously it could be one-on-many, okay? It's not defined as one-on-one. -on -one. But when you talk about undue influence, it tends to be used contextually as a sort of a one-on-one -on -one thing. Um, he had undue influence over her kind of thing. Whereas he is not, you know, you could say in a slang term, he's PRing her, but you're really just saying he's lying to her, he's deceiving her, he's, you know, he's conning her. And PR, public relations, as a body, as a, as a, a body of truths, as a body of methods or techniques to mass manipulate, you know, bodies of people, that's what it was designed for. That's what it's, that's what Bernays codified was the techniques and and uh, methods of engaging with mass audiences. And when you're dealing with mass audiences, you are dealing with lowest common denominators. You are dealing with emotional responses much more than you're dealing with reasoned, rational thinking and responses. You're trying to elicit responses from a crowd. You're looking for emotional responses. You're looking for, ah, yay, right? These kind of, ha, ah, even euphoric responses. Um, and that's the and the NPR is the tool set to do that. So, as they say, what was that saying from uh, from Men in Black? Right, people, uh, 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 individuals are smart. Right, people are stupid, and it's because of the fact that when you're dealing with masses of people, even if it's five, ten people, you're having to lower common denominator. You got to find the point where all of them are going to agree, or where they are going to agree most. Uh, easily or most readily, and that's where you're going to come into emotion because um, the things that people will tend to gravitate on are basic, you know, kind of like lizard brain kind of stuff. I hate that term, but it's a it, it, it communicates, I think, right? In other words, our, our most base emotions, our most base responses, fight or flight kind of responses, 
This is so easy to gen up in a group of people if you can terrify them or elate them one way or the other, you can get these commonality of emotional responses. And then you'll get from those emotional responses or from a lead-in to that, you will get um, people agreeing with the ideas that are being presented uh, or put forth. Um, now, when I say emotions, I don't just mean anger and hate and, and grief and that kind of thing. It could even be like, you know, things like attraction. You know, we talk about advertising and propaganda and, and, uh, and mass manipulation, right? You bring sex into it. Well, sex is not an emotion, but sex is a basic, basic drive that, that again, lowest common denominator, right? What's something that the most number of people are going to most readily agree on? Sex is going to be way up there because there's so many emotions connected with it and because there's so many bodily feelings connected with it that feel so damn good. And so people, you know, have real basic urges and drives in that direction, which is why sex sells. You know what else sells or the other thing that uh, really, really appeals to people is violence. Very basic, very primitive, very fight or flight. And so people can uh, immediately, you know, come to agreement or disagreement, right? Depending on how you're framing the messaging, what the context of the delivery is. Um, you know, you can incite an awful lot of very interesting reactions in groups of people using violence, violent imagery, uh, violent sports, right? Violent uh, thinking, uh, a lot of violent rhetoric. And even we even use the language of this stuff in nonviolent circumstances to bring in and trigger all of those, you know, base kinds of, let's call them drivers, Okay. Um, and those, I don't know, those are just a few thoughts I'm having off the top of my head about this in terms of like what is PR and what are you doing and how is that maybe a little bit different from undue influence or coercive control, which has to do with isolation, manipulation, and control. You can isolate a group of people and manipulate the hell out of them and control them, but it's really effective and most lasting and most impactful when you're doing it one-on-one -on -one because you have the individual separated, culled from the herd, so to speak. And, they, and, and while a herd mentality will appeal to the lowest common denominator and base and you know, emotions and all that, when you cull somebody from the herd, they're alone. They're not supported by the herd. The crowd isn't there. There's nobody there backing them up. It's you and them. One, you know, mano y mano, right? Uh, so that is... Where anyway, those those tend to be the contexts or the places where your undue influence or your course of control is going to uh, more readily, you know, work. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so those are some ideas. I hope that I hope that at least sparks some thinking on 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 your part about how this stuff works and how you yourself may be affected by this stuff because it affects all of us. You know, people who think advertising doesn't work have no clue what advertising is actually doing to people. Uh, to say something like that is just, it, it's just silly. It's like saying the sky's not blue. I mean, it's just, it's so obvious that it does work. And one of the ways it works, by the way, best is when people actually think because of their ego and their ignorance that it doesn't work on them. <laughs> it's awesome. It's the most incredible thing. So, um, so the stuff does work. It definitely does. And anyway, there you go. C.C. Smith, 
Where do you think artificial intelligence, AI, is going? What are the risks? I was wondering if AI will have the ability to instantly see the consequences of the action it is about to carry out and then change the direction to a more survival action. For sure, it won't do what humans do now, either not see the consequences or see them but instantly justify the action as correct, even with full awareness of the inhumane action. That's what all cult members, addicts, parasites, and predators do, right? Well, Cece, if I'm really being honest, that last bit there is what we all do. All of us. Um, Not just cult members or extremists, but there's degrees of this, right? Some of us uh, engage in this uh, sort of justification play, rationalization thing uh, at at levels that don't really hurt anybody or are not destructive. we, We really blow it up when we see it in destructive contexts or in places where people are being abused or hurt. And that's why we talk about it with cult members. But the fact of the matter is that cult members aren't aren't thinking differently than you are in terms of the physicality of what's going on it's the extremism and the and the 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 identity connection with the thinking that makes it so dangerous and so extreme okay so as far as ai goes my first thought on this and i did a whole show about ai recently i know i keep saying that in response to all the questions only because not because i'm telling you not to ask me these questions but because i want you guys to know there's more content on my channel about this stuff and with artificial intelligence um one of the points that i made when i discussed this in some detail is that it was a critical conversation show by the way if you're if you want to look that up it'll be a friday night show um People who program AI do not understand how this thing works, and they don't understand the connection of emotions and the interplay of our rational thinking mind and our emotional mind and our moral foundations. And a lot of what you ask in your question has to do with human thinking more so than computer thinking. The computer is only going to think the way we program it to. So as much foresight or um, you know understanding of the human mind and the human processes, the thinking processes that the programmer has, the more accurately they will program AI to duplicate human beings. However, do we really want that? Do we want human beings doing what we do? Uh, you know, do we want, sorry, do we want AI doing what, what we do? You know, I don't think so. Um, because we're pretty illogical. We are, we are heavily driven by our emotions. And AI is not ever going to have emotions, not in the way we understand them, because AI does not have a body. And bodies are all, emotions are all about your body. Uh, if anything, I've, I, I love my made up, uh, of course I do, I love my made up definition of emotions as thoughts that your whole body feels. Right, because you feel them in your toes. You get it, it you know, because you, your stomach, all of it. Like you're, this whole neural network down here is just as at hard at work as this one when it comes to your emotions and emotional reactions and things. That's why you get all giddy in the stomach and all that, all kinds of stuff. It's fascinating. Um, so when you ask about, you know, are computers or are AI going to be thinking in terms of consequences? I, I mean, maybe eventually if they're programmed to. And, um, and consequences are all about values, and values are all about moral foundations. And moral foundations are definitions or concepts we carry within us, each one individually, that define our concepts of right, wrong, good, and bad. 
And right, wrong, good, and bad are, are relative concepts. They, are, they depend utterly and completely on your point of view and your value set. What's good for me is not what's good for you and vice versa. And we can, we, you know, this, this is, this is just, just how it is. So uh, computers don't have values. Computers are machines. They have values if we program them in. If we tell it what to do or we tell it what's important or we tell it what's good and what's bad, it'll do it. That's what a machine does. Machines are not anywhere near, and I don't care what machine you're talking about that's been invented on this planet all the way up to now. I don't care about how extensive your server farm is. I don't care how extensive you know, your computer programming system is or how many you know, motherboards you tie together. None of it comes close to the complexity of what's going on up here. Not even remotely close. So, um, so we've got, you know, so again, if you're trying to parallel this thing in terms of thinking through uh, consequences and understanding what that even means, we've got a long way to go still. And every single time I have tried to bring up any of this with people who are uh, coders or programmers who know something about AI and how this stuff gets put together, they couldn't care less about what I'm talking about. They just don't care to know. Uh, they think they are already on some golden path, and at the end of that path is either some kind of form of, uh, I don't know, uh, ultimately, you know, there's the transhumanism thing, uh, which I, I, I don't think is a dead movement yet. Um, you know, this concept of translate, you know, of, of uploading your, your consciousness into a machine or something. I mean, it's just the most ridiculously asinine stupidity I've ever heard of. Because um, it doesn't work that way, you know. Your your body is a complete system. It's not just a brain. Your your thinking processes are not just what's going on up here. Anyway, I'm talking an awful lot about people rather than AI here, but I'm trying to make the point that AI is really just a is just a mechanism that we program. And right now, AI compiles information at incredible speeds and at rates of, of, of data processing that we cannot do. That much is true. But what it does with the data is only as good as it's been, what it's been told to do with the data. And mostly that's a matter of amalgamating information and presenting it to you in such a way that it looks to you like it's thinking. Like it's actually creating information and processing that information. And it's not doing it the same way we are. So, um, yeah. So, as far as all the consequences of an action and that sort of thing, you know, it's... It, it, you, it's it, it, I, I wonder, here's where I'm wondering, here's, here's what I don't know about this that I will absolutely confess to not knowing is machine learning that's a thing i do not fully understand or know how it how it actually works only because i haven't taken the time to go find out because it's it's not really my jam i'm more interested in why we think the way we do more so than machines but um i would like to learn a little bit more about machine learning because there have been recent um steps forward in terms of teaching a computer uh, like some game theory and Go, teaching it Go, that was a big step forward in terms of consequential, consequential thinking, like really thinking through all the consequences of every move because Go is an infinitely more complicated game than chess. 
And, um, and so there's probably something there. But again, the machine's only going to learn or it's only going to process information according to the way it's basic programming. Even if it's, even if it's doing learning, it's still following a set of commands and an algorithm that was put there by a human being. And I don't know in terms of the whole algorithm evolution thing, I'm not an expert on that, right? So I can only talk about this stuff to so far. And um, and I don't want to conjecture about things I don't really understand. So I'm only speaking within the things I do understand. So I hope that gives some useful information, but I know it's not as complete an answer as it could be because I'm just not a computer scientist and I don't understand uh, all the things there is to know about that stuff. But here's the scary thing I'm going to leave you with on this because it scares me. These same programmers I talked to and the articles I have read and the, and the forum conversations I have had have indicated to me that they don't understand the machine learning at a certain point either. And that they'll start the process, but they don't really get where it's going. And there are these things I talked about, these black box, al black box algorithms that are doing, that, that receive information, do something with it, and pop, push it back out. And no one really knows what's going on inside that black box, inside that evolutionary algorithm that's machine learning its way to, you know, godhood or whatever the hell it's doing. That's scary to me because if we don't understand what our machines are doing and they start, you know, hallucinating as we've heard of with AIG, but I'm talking about real AI like, like thinking machines. If we start moving in that direction and we don't understand the very processes by which this thing is building itself or growing or learning and it's not, you know, and, and it's not even find outable. That's the kind of thing that is like Oppenheimer a little bit, a little bit, right? If we set this bomb off, will it start a chain reaction that will destroy the universe? Well, the chances are really small. I mean, maybe, <laughs> right? And they did it anyway, right? This is people. Right. If, if, if presented with a button to push and you don't know what it's going to do, a lot of people are just going to push that thing just to find out. That's who we are. We're pretty stupid uh, as far as that kind of thing goes. So um, anyway, my final comment on that. Anyway, I hope that I hope that gives something. And anyway, thanks for asking me, Cece. Vito Jacobs, I had an observation maybe which could be confirmation bias or maybe a real thing, but I don't remember seeing it talked about anywhere. I've seen many people, including myself, gain weight once they leave the Sea Org. I feel like for me, there was a regimentation which may have caused some level of food disorder. For me, there were three times a day where you ate, whether you were hungry or not. You had to eat at those times or you would get hungry later. Also, there was not always access to food. The canteen would have to be open or you would have had to buy some food before and store it somewhere. I feel like I can't tell when I'm hungry or full. I will eat the amount of food that is available to me. Once I realized this, I started counting calories to try and figure out how much I should actually be eating, but I can't tell based on my body when I should be eating or when I should stop eating. Have you observed anything like this? Is this already a known thing? 
Okay, thank you very much for this question. And yes, I actually noticed when I was still in the Sea Org that consistently when people leave the Sea Org, they gain weight. Almost almost 100% of the time, they get bigger. And um, sometimes really noticeably so, sometimes not so much so, but almost uniformly, they do. And even if they were already big, in the Sea Org, and some people are just genetically stocky, big people. It's not a matter of how much, you know, they're they're just shoving down their mouth because they're pigs. It's just they got big bodies. They're big boned. Um, even they would get bigger boned, right? Uh, I mean, hell, I gained weight after I got out of the Sea Org. That was for damn sure. And I saw so many people who did. So is that a common, you know, routine thing? Yes. And is it because, I'll say yes, based on my experience and observation, and, um, you know, is that based on the fact that they get to eat more and that they get to eat better and that they have full range of food after they leave? I think so. I absolutely think so. When I was in the Sea Org, I used to literally notice this and tell myself what pigs these guys are. Man, they get out and they just let themselves go, you know, and this kind of crap. Uh, I had no idea how like undernourished I was as a Sea Org member. I mean, it just sucked. And as you say here, there were three days, you know, three meals a day, and you ate when you ate, and there wasn't a lot of snacking going on. But of course, all of us would sneak snacks, and I would even carry stuff around with me out of the canteen, or I'd stick it in my desk or something, and then munch on it in the afternoon. But I had a job where I could do that as a course supervisor or as an auditor or something. You can't be doing that. You know, you're 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 working. Uh, in front of somebody, like a public person, or you're in a course room supervising, you can't just whip out a candy bar and start eating. Uh, but I was at a desk a lot, so I got to do that. But I wasn't, um, but even then, you know, as a Sea Org member, I was, I wasn't gaunt, but I, you've seen some, I, I think you've seen a picture of me when I was in the Sea Org. I was definitely less weight than I am now. And I noticed this with lots and lots of people, lots of people. So um, you, sounds like you have uh, a situation where I would, uh, you know, I would talk to your doctor, uh, Vito, because, um, and you probably already have, but, um, you know, body care, diets, this kind of thing, I'm not even going to pretend to go there as far as like any expertise or anything. I don't know anything about it. I just know um, that, you know, when you eat a lot, you get big. And if you starve yourself, you get small and it can go and you can lose the weight and it can come back. Or sometimes, you know, other things can have, I, I, you know, I'm not even going to go there. There is so much crap out there about diets and what the best diet is and how to eat and all that. Not, not doing that. Um, you asked about, you know, the Sea Org thing. And I will say, I will just confirm for you that uh, without any question whatsoever, uh, when people leave the Sea Org, they tend to eat more, eat better, and um, thereby their body grows more <laughs> as a result. So there you go. Leslie Bishop, you recently made some comments about emotional maturity and how common it is for men to tend to shy away from emotions in general. I 1,000% agree with you on this, but I'd like to hear your thoughts about why this is. I understand environmental factors are a part of this, but do you think neurological differences are a factor as well? Yes, I do, Leslie. I believe that neurological differences, uh, genetic differences, in other words, at the DNA level, I think we are built very differently. Uh, this is obviously a feature, not a bug. Uh, this is an evolutionary process. We, we evolve this way. And males are the ones who are classically in history. I'm not talking about right now. And if any of you guys are going to start throwing culture war stuff at me, I'm going to get a little irked. Because if you look at the long history of mammals on this planet, and we are mammals, 
the males are the ones who go out and do a lot of the killing. Now, that's not uniform, and there are always exceptions, and there's plenty of exceptions in the animal kingdom. But statistically speaking, and in the broad sense of things, males are the ones who have to go out and do the dirty work, the hard work, the stuff that is taxing physically, emotionally, mentally, and uh, morally. And if you got to go out and kill things in order to live, and that's what males are kind of built to do. That's why we're stronger and taller and bigger boned and all of that, more muscle mass and all of that. Then you have to have mental machinery in place that's going to reinforce that behavior. So the last thing you want to do right before you're about to put the spear in the elephant or the tiger or the lion or the rabbit is go, oh, but it's so cute. Oh, I I can't kill this little guy and feed my family because look at how cute he is, right? I mean, you know, this might even sound simple, Simon, in 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 the mentality of what I'm talking about here. But it's true. This is how it is. And this is why males are, this is one major reason in terms of our makeup. I'm not talking about culture and education, as you mentioned in the question. Those, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about base, you know, build a body. What's that body trying to do, right? Dominate its environment, overpower any enemy, feed itself. And if that means it has to kill or be killed, it will kill. And male bodies are built to do that better than female bodies. Females are the young, rearing, family-raising type of thing. This is not a necessity at this point in our society, but it has been for thousands and thousands of years in the past when we were a little more primitive. That's why our genetic makeups and and, and the average male versus the average female have height, weight, muscle mass, and mental differences, right? And we can look to the animal kingdom for this as well as to human beings. This is not just something that exists with us, right? We just think about it a lot and rationalize it and and wonder why, right? Uh, Gorillas don't wonder. (laughs) They just go out and do what they do, Uh, you know, at least as far as we know, because we're not talking with them. Every attempt to have communication with them has not, not worked out so great. So, um, so those, that's my simple Simon answer, but I really don't think it's a very complicated situation. I, I don't think it requires, you know, I mean, you can delve into, uh, if you want to, and I'll, I will always, um, I, I, I thought about this recently and I realized I need to recommend it a lot more. There is a um, wonderful set of lectures by a man named Robert Sapolsky uh, on uh, human behavioral biology. So I think, I think it's like 25 or 26 lectures. They're all free. They're from on the Stanford University site, at least they were last time I checked. And it's an entire course, college level, deep. I mean, he goes deep on human behavioral biology, and he covers everything. It is such a good lecture set. Not all the data in it is still 100% valid. There have been some discoveries and changes since then, but mostly, like 95 98% of it, absolutely spot on. And uh, very enlightening, very enlightening uh, for, you know, understanding what's going on throughout our entire biology and how does it formulate our behavior. 
and our even our thinking and all of that. So I, I can't recommend that enough. I learned so much from that, and I think uh, I think anybody would. There you go, Leslie. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching me gab on about all of this. I hope you appreciated my answers and I hope that they made sense and I am more than happy to hear your feedback in the comment section. Please do like, share, get this video around on the interwebs. I'm really not kidding. Likes matter in terms of YouTube recommending my videos. So if you liked it, like it, put, put the thumbs up on there. And um, by the way, if you're not getting notifications of new content on my channel as it's coming up, then um, when you subscribe to the channel, click that little bell button and get those notifications because um, there's a lot of good stuff here for you. Uh, and it will continue to be as I keep making it. All right. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.